we haven't met, my name is Wes, and I'm going to be reading the scripture um, before the message today. First John 3:11 to 18. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not, sorry, do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you do not know that you know, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Thank you, Wes. Thank you, Rod. Good morning to you. It's great to be with you as always. If we haven't met, my name is David. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here and I want to welcome you and welcome to those who are joining us online as we gather today. Hey, before we uh, jump into our teaching today, I just have a little uh, announcement uh, about Christmas Eve. As you've already heard, we're having Christmas Eve uh, services in the morning instead of our traditional uh, Christmas Eve evening services. Um, and we recognize that that's a tradition that, that is, is, is really important here and, and that uh, some of you uh, recognize and feel that there's been a loss because, well, we're not having Christmas Eve services in the evening and, and, and we're having them in the morning and that just feels different and strange. And so I just wanted to, to say... Um, to communicate well to us as a church, a couple of reasons uh, why we decided to go with meeting in the morning instead of going in the evening as we normally do. And, and the first is just acknowledging that there's a tradition here and, and that it matters to us. And so we want to acknowledge that. And we want you to know that we discussed it as a team, we prayed about it, and then we kind of landed on meeting in the morning at 10 a.m. For, uh, for two main reasons. The first being is that once every seven years, Christmas lands on a Sunday. And that means so once every seven years, we have the opportunity to gather in the morning in our normal rhythm that we have throughout the year. And, and that, that gives us an opportunity that we don't have in the other years. And so what we want you to know is that for six years, we are always going to be doing Christmas Eve services. And maybe in the future, we may do uh, a Christmas evening service when it falls on Sunday. But for this year, we prayed and decided that what we wanted to do was to meet in the morning, and for the other six years, we'll meet in the evening. The second reason is coming because I, as a leader, I want to bless the pastoral team and staff and the volunteers who serve so faithfully and give up their time on a Christmas Eve. 
I really care about blessing them, and they give so much, uh, our staff and our volunteers. And so what I really hope for is that by meeting in the morning, we can worship, and we're going to have a Christmas Eve service. We're going to encounter Jesus. We're going to sing songs, and it's going to be a great time. And I want to bless our volunteers, and I want to bless our pastoral and staff members to go and be with their families in the afternoon and the evening and enjoy that because they don't get the opportunity to do that uh, every six years for the other six years. And so that's why we decided to go in that direction this year. If you have questions, please let us know at the office. But that just is the the heart behind why we did this. And I wanted to communicate that clearly with you so that you understood where we were coming from with that. Okay, that's all I have for that. Let me pray as we jump into our teaching. Jesus, we want to echo what we've already sung. All hail King Jesus. We love you and we are thankful that you came and lived and died for us and that today we stand here getting the chance to sing about that and that we have the opportunity to learn about what that means for our lives as we open up your Bible and hear your word. And so we ask, Father, Son, and Spirit, that you would speak through your word and to us directly through the Spirit and that you would change us and lift our eyes to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in a teaching series in what's called First John. It's a letter written by a man named John who knew and experienced Jesus personally when Jesus was God in human form on earth. John is someone who looked upon Jesus with his own eyes. John is someone who heard Jesus speak with his own ears. John is someone who touched God who was in human form with his own hands. John was someone who was at the cross and looked upon it as Jesus died there for you and for me and for the world. John is writing this letter as someone who experienced the mystery and the wonder of who God is in the person of Jesus. And now, years later, he's writing to a group of churches that he's pastoring, and he's passing on what he experienced, what he learned to other followers of Jesus as they try to figure out what does it look like to know and to love and to follow Jesus amidst all the challenges and pressures in the world around them. And many, if, if not all, of, the same, of those pressures and challenges that John is addressing in his letter are, are the same challenges and pressures that you and I face today. Things have not changed all that much. What John is going to be talking about today, what he's talked about every week so far as we've opened up this letter and engaged with it, those same pressures and challenges are still ones that you and I face today. Like the challenge that John is going to address in our passage today, the challenge that it is to love others well. The challenge to love others well. This challenge was alive in John's day and it's still alive today. And it's maybe even more difficult in a a culture that we live in today that has almost normalized hate and sees canceling others as an acceptable way to relate to them. That this is the world that we live in, this, this environment that we are in sees hate as, as a normal expression and canceling as an acceptable way to respond to people. Telling us that loving others is challenging. It's hard. It's not easy. And yet the call to love remains for the community of Jesus called the church. And John is going to remind us of that as we turn to our text and begin reading in verse 11 where John says this. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. 
This is the second of two foundational messages in 1 John. The first message is found if you go back to chapter 1, verse 5, and there John says, God is light, and those who follow Jesus must walk in the light as he did. And then here, John, in in chapter 3, verse 11, and just a bit later in chapter 4, verse 8, he gives us the second message, which is God is love. And those who follow Jesus must love one another. These two great messages lay at the heart of everything that John is teaching in this letter. Understanding 1 John begins with understanding these two messages. But it also requires that we grasp the individual and the community aspects of this. Each and every one of John's teachings that flow out of these two great messages has an individual application. It's for you. It's for me, it's for each of us individually, but what John is doing in this passage particularly and throughout much of 1 John is he's actually writing to the community of God's people called the church. He's writing to us collectively, to all those who have put their trust in Jesus and been united to God and to one another in the family of God called the church. So what John is doing today is he's teaching you, he's teaching me, but most importantly, he's teaching all of us as God's people, how to live together and to love one another. It's a lived message. It's not just a message written on a piece of paper. This is a lived message, and the message is this, that as God's people, we are to love one another. From here on out, this is going to drive everything in 1 John. But if you've been tracking with us throughout the series, and if you know the letter of 1 John, you know this is not the first time that John has talked about loving one another. If you go back to chapter 2, verses 7 to 8, there John speaks about this for the very first time, saying that in the age we live in, the age of Jesus, the age of the Spirit, the age of the rule and reign of God, breaking into this world, giving us a taste of the future that awaits us here and now in the present, love for God. And love for one another is meant to mark the lives of those who follow Jesus, and it's meant to mark how they live together. And it's been this way from the start of God's people and their life with God. If you flip back to the part of the Bible called the Old Testament, the part of the Bible before Jesus, in a book of the Bible called Deuteronomy, you see God's people have just begun to be formed, and you see in chapter 6 these words, Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. So when it comes to being the people of God, this is the first and most important teaching that God has given us. And the teaching is this, is to love God, the maker of heaven and earth. Love the God who moved in a mighty way and reached down into Egypt and led his people out of slavery and brought them to freedom. Love this God with all that you are, with all of your capacity. This is the first and the greatest teaching of God. And then in some of your favorite book of, book of the Bible, a book called Leviticus, God reveals the next important teaching. He says, do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. After loving God, the most important thing that God says that we should be building our lives on is to love your neighbor in the way that you would want to be loved if you were them. 
And it's not just the people that look like you or think like you or have the same political affiliation as you or follow the same Bible teacher as you or have the same theological framework for their life as you, but this is clear in the scriptures from beginning to end. You are to love all people. All people. Why? Everyone is your neighbor. Why? Because they bear the image and the likeness of God. Every single human being, from the most wealthy and the most popular to the most famous to the most forgotten and the most overlooked, the outcast and the downtrodden, and everyone in between, every single person that you see every single day is stamped with the image and the likeness of God. And that means they deserve to be seen and they deserve to be loved. There's a lot of things I love about my wife, and she's gonna hate the fact that I'm telling this story. I asked her about it, so it's okay. Um, but one, there's so many things I love about my wife, but one of the things I love about my wife is that she really and truly sees people and she loves them where they are. It's a gift that she has. And there was this moment a couple weeks ago where she was going to take some of our boys' old toys and old clothes that uh, are still in really good condition, but they've grown out of. She's taken it to Value Village, and so she pulls up into the, the drop-off line, and, and, and beside the drop-off door is this woman. And this woman is obviously really struggling. Like, she, she, she looks like she's, she doesn't have a home, and, and she's there, and her head's down, and, and all these people ahead of my wife are just passing by her. All these people are not even acknowledging her presence. Like, they don't even see her. I mean, they see her, but they really don't. You know what I'm saying? And so my wife, being who she is, she decides, I'm not going to go do that. And she walks up to this lady and goes, hi, how can I help you? And almost startled the lady a little bit because no one had been paying any attention to her. And she finds out as she talks to her that she's just really cold. She was wet, her clothes were damp, and she was looking for something to make her feel warm. And so we have this blanket in the back of my car, our car, and my wife went and got it, and she gave it to her and said, I hope this helps you stay warm. It's one of the reasons I love my wife. It's one small act of love, but I bet you that if you could meet that woman, it would be deeply meaning for her, meaningful for her, because in that moment, she was seen and she was loved in a practical and kind way. That's what we're talking about here. It's what John is wanting us to see and to know, that love for all people is meant to mark our lives because that's how Jesus lived and that's what he says is important. And we want to be the kind of place that is about the things that Jesus says is important. But notice that John is not talking about all people in this passage. He's actually talking very specifically to the people who belong to the church, God's people, brothers and sisters in God's family. And he's specifically talking about how you and I and we love one another. This is who John is speaking to in verse 11 and what he's going to be speaking to for the rest of our time together. And his driving motivation for doing this is what Wes has already said, is that he wants the people of God, to be formed into a people who love God and love one another well. This is what John is after. And I love the way John writes because the way he goes about this is he doesn't give us a religious formula or a set of rules to follow. It's not even enough for John to give us the message and the command of God to say, go love one another. No, for John, what he wants to do is to root it in something deeper, something richer, something more powerful that actually gives us a chance to go and do this. And you know what he does is he draws our attention to Jesus and the activity of Jesus in us and for us. Jump down to verse 16. John writes this, 
This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So that word know means to have knowledge about something and to know it experientially. Meaning John is saying that the death of Jesus, when Jesus goes to the cross and he dies in our place for us, the death of Jesus helps you and I understand and experience love as it was meant to be. He uses Jesus to cut through all those ideas and visions and thoughts and pictures of love that we have from the movies we watch, the the books we read, the the stories we see online. He cuts through all of that and he says, if you really want to know what love is and if you really want to experience it for yourself, then you need to set your attention on Jesus and think about what he did for you and what he did for the world. So yes, in verse 11, John starts with this command to love one another, but the actual real starting point is not even verse 11, it's verse 16. His real starting point is Jesus. Because Jesus is the way that you can actually get your head wrapped around what love truly is and what it's meant to be, and it's the way that you can experience that love for yourself. And so just a bit later, John is actually going to teach us that God is love, meaning that God is the source and the origin of love who continuously gives of himself for others and to others to seek their flourishing and their good. Meaning that when Jesus comes, God in human form, he comes, it means that the God that is love became love incarnate. That love, as it was always meant to be, had skin and bones on and it lived on earth And that through that, Jesus made the the God who is love known to us, and he made what true love is known to us. It was near, and it was present with us. Just read through the biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you see this love in action over and over again. You see it in how Jesus spoke to people, and how he treated people, and how he acted. You see it in how Jesus loved the people that nobody else had time for that he loved the people that the world had said were unlovable. You see it when he did the job of the lowliest servant, the job that nobody else wanted to do because they saw it as beneath them. And he washed the dirty, mud-caked feet of his closest friends. One by one he went, and he cleaned their dirty, smelly, stinky feet, even the feet that belonged to the one who was going to betray him. And the way that you see the love of God in its clearest form, in its greatest power, in its greatest beauty, when you see the lengths that the love of God will go to for others is when Jesus died for you and for me and for the world, when he had nails driven into his wrists and his feet and he suffered on a Roman cross for you. John says it's at the cross where we understand and experience love most fully. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. I don't know what your definition of love is, but before I met Jesus, I know what mine was, and it had to do with what I did and how well I did it. See, that's how I thought about love before I met Jesus. That's how I thought you experienced love. I thought the only reason that I could ever experience and know what love is is because I played a sport really well, that I played hockey at a high level. 
that I never had a day off where I was not so good or not, not great, but I always had this performance mindset. And I would have never said it with words because I don't even think I really realized it, but deep within me was this belief that I had to earn love and do everything I could to try and keep it. And I lived most of my life that way. And I still struggle with it to this day, all these years later. And if you've walked that road in life, then you know how painful and exhausting it can be to try to perform for your love and do everything you can to try and keep it. You know how hard it is. And I was destined to live on that treadmill for the rest of my life until it shifted for me when I had someone invite me to church, when I had someone say, hey, come and hear about this Jesus that I follow. And then it changed for me, and it all shifted for me when I had someone shift my attention and get my attention to Jesus and the cross. Because there, when I saw that, I didn't grow up in the church, when I saw that, when I experienced that for the first time, what I found was the greatest love that I've ever experienced, and it changed me and continues to change me in the deepest way possible. And I know it can for you. I believe it can for you. Encountering the love of Jesus is the greatest love I've ever experienced. And so you might be here searching like I was. You may be longing to be seen. You may be hungry and desiring to be seen and known and loved for who you are. You may be longing to get off the unrelenting treadmill of trying to prove yourself and impress others. And if that's you, I want you to hear today that there is a greater love than anything you will ever experience available to you. Jesus actually said in John 15, there is no greater love than to lay one's, lay one's life down for his friends. The love of Jesus is the greatest and most powerful love there is. When you encounter it, it changes you. And it helps you move from performing to resting. To resting, because you can never lose the love of God. It will never change. And so if you want to know what love is and you want to experience it for yourself, John says, look at Jesus laying down his life for you, because there you begin to understand what love is, and you begin to experience love as it was meant to be. And you can experience a power that will change you on the inside and begin to move you to love others, which is what Jesus has actually sent us to do. John 13 says, a new command I give you. This is Jesus speaking. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Like Jesus couldn't have said it more clearly that we are to be known by the way that we love each other. And it's not just any type of love. Like Jesus didn't say, just plug in your version of love. He's actually saying, no, the kind of love I modeled, the kind of love I'm going to reveal to you in my death, it's a Jesus-type love that we are called to love one another with. And John, he wants to remind us of that so that we wouldn't just know that there's this love out there, but we would actually begin to live it out with one another. That Jesus-type love wouldn't be just something we talk about on a Sunday or sing about, but it actually would be something that we live out in our relationships every day and every hour of the week. And we can nod our heads, and we can agree, and we can be ready to move on and say, Dave, let's move on to verse 12, come on. But why does John keep having to remind the church to love one another? 
why does John mention it in verse 2 and then just a little few verses later he has to mention it again? Why does he do that? Because we don't get it. Because too often the opposite of loving one another is present within the people of God, which is why John turns to talk about that and give us a negative example and talk about love's opposite in verse 12. He says, do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in them. So John, what he's doing here is he's using a well-known story in Judaism to illustrate how jealousy and hatred can destroy relationships in a family. In the first book of the Bible called Genesis, you find this story in chapter 4. There's two brothers, Cain and Abel, and both bring an offering to God. Abel's was more pleasing to God, and it's accepted. Cain's wasn't, and God didn't accept his offering. There were some things that were wrong in his heart, and he only gave, uh, um, I guess the word would be, he gave a, um, he just gave some of his stuff, not the choice fruits of his labors like his brother did. And Cain sees this action and sees what happens and how God accepted and had favor on Abel's offering, and he becomes jealous. And that jealousy turns into hatred. And his hatred for his brother leads him to murder his brother. He lures him into a field and he kills him. This is a story that was archetypal in, the, in Judaism about jealousy, envy, and how hate tears apart relationships in a family. And John uses it here because the church is the family of God. We are brothers and sisters because of our faith in Jesus. And when we fail to love, when we harbor hatred, we tear apart what Jesus died to bring together. And John, he's got strong language for this. He uses the words like murder. Calls people who have hatred for others as murderers. They're those that take life from others. Those are some strong words, but they're there for a reason because John wants the people of God to be bringers of life, not takers of it. And he likens hatred and the inner attitudes of that, just following in Jesus' footsteps from Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, and says our inner attitudes of hate equal, is seen in the same way by God as, as murderous. And far too often, I'm sad to say this, but some of the meanest and most hurtful people are Christians. Yeah, I heard that. Everyone went, hmm. I was reminded of this the other day. I was list online and I was listening to this uh, Jesus follower talk about the situation in Gaza and Israel. And I made the, the really dumb mistake to read the comments. Don't read comments. Oh, it was awful. The worst comments were some for, from the people that said they followed Jesus, and they were using the Bible as a weapon to tear this person down. It was so ugly. Pro tip, don't read comments, David. Too often... The church, people who follow Jesus are some of the meanest people. They use God to harm. Let me be clear. There is no room for hate in God's family. None. None. 
We are to be people who lift others up, not seek to tear others down. And the way we lift others up, John says, is to, is to love one another. The way we bring life is to love one another. Hate destroys life. Love builds it up. And I don't know anyone who wants to destroy life. I don't know anyone who wants to go out and, and knowingly does this. But the problem is, is that too often we talk about love and we fail to do it. We give our assent to the idea of loving others, but it never leads to action. And John hits this on the nail in verse 17 and 18. He says, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. The goal of love is not just to receive it, the goal of love is not just to believe that God is love and to, and to believe that he has loved us in Jesus in a way that is unimaginable. The goal of love is to receive it and then express it to the people around you. That is the, pen, the ultimate thing that love is meant to do, to move you to love others, to see others who are in need and do something to help them. If you fail to do that, John asks, is the love of God really in you? If you aren't moved on some level when you see someone hurting or in need, John asks, is the love of God really in you? Nathan touched on that same idea last week, saying, if your identity doesn't lead you to love, you have not understood the message of Jesus and the gospel has not taken root in you in the way it should. Why? Verse 14 here says that love is evidence that we have passed from death to life, that God has brought you from spiritual death to spiritual life, that God's life is in you and it is moving through you. That love is evidence that that has actually happened. And I get it. Loving others is hard. It's inconvenient. Sometimes, as a dad, I don't have anything to give. Let alone as a pastor. Entrusted to shepherd people through stuff. It's hard. But we need to find a way to move from just talking a lot about love and actually going and doing it. I love C.S. Lewis and I love what he says about this. He says it's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. See, what we're talking about is not easy. It's going to cost you something. But it's the way of Jesus. And so the question I have is, how do you grow in loving others in the way John is talking about? Well, you need something to happen in you. This is not something that you do. You need something to happen in you. I think we need a fresh vision of what love actually is. And we get that vision from John, verse 16 again. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his love for us. So again, to love others well, to understand and experience the love of God, we have to get our attention on Jesus and specifically the cross because there you see that at its core, love is generous. At its core, love is generous. Think about it. Jesus gave his very life for us. He gave away what he possessed for our good and flourishing. And in that, we see a generosity unlike anything else in all of history. I'll just take one example. I'm going to read for you, for you uh, from a letter that a guy named Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. Listen to his words and see the generosity of Jesus. Paul says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So think in the same way. 
He says, Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, when we're talking about Jesus, we are talking about the most generous person who has ever lived. Because we're not just talking about a real historical person or a good moral teacher. He's those things, but he's also more than that. He's actually God, someone who has existed for all eternity, someone who was there before the world was created, someone who crafted the solar system. He created the world and he rules over it by the word of his power. He's a king over all the universe and has been in a position of power and authority for all eternity. This is who Jesus is. He's a king who is willing to leave it all behind to be a servant on earth to the point of death. He left his royal position in heaven to come near to us and he gave up his life for us so that you and I could have the life that we were searching for, a life with God. That's just staggering. And the thing is, it's even more staggering when when you start to think about Jesus didn't have to do it. He could have stayed in heaven. He could have let us just run around and, 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 and in the darkness and, and ruin our lives. He could let us do that, but he didn't. He chose to come to us in order to rescue us. Why? Because he loved us. God so loved the world that he gave who? His only son. See, in Jesus we see that love is costly sacrifices. This is other-oriented, lifts others up. He is the most generous person who ever lived. He put others first and did what needed to be done so that others could experience what they needed and what they were created to have. His love is extravagantly generous. And it's that kind of love that you and I are to have to express and embody in our life together. As those who follow Jesus, we're to be generous with our lives like he was generous with his. We know this intuitively. Mark Allen Powell writes this in his book about generosity. He says, there's a strong connection between love and giving. Most of us know what love is like, what it's like to love someone so much that we want to give them things. The motivation for such gifts is not primarily obligation, but desire. We give not because it is something we should do, but because it is something we want to do. So there's a connection between love and generosity. John mentions it, Jesus modeled it, and we are now called to walk in that same way as the followers of Jesus. And hear me, when we're talking about generosity, we're not just talking about being generous with your money. It definitely includes that. Giving, as Rod said, is about a discipleship issue. It's about stewarding the good thing that God has given you and giving that back to the God who owns it anyway in response to his great generosity to you. That you want to put your money into the things that will build the kingdom of heaven on earth. So it includes money, but it's also more than money. See, the the primary way the Bible talks about generosity is helping those in need. It's how John describes it in verse 17 and 18. Those who have give to those who don't have, which means there are a thousand different ways for us to be generous. We can make it a priority to slow down and pay attention to people. You can give what you have to someone in need. You can listen to someone truly and not just be thinking about what you're going to have for lunch. You can give a portion of your income to the church or to a nonprofit that seeks justice in the city. It's helping someone move or meeting a need they have. There's a thousand different ways to be generous, the key is 
doing it and not just talking about it. You know what? Generosity is hard and uncomfortable and it's going to cost you something. You're not guaranteed to get back what you have given. And we live in a consumer culture that's constant message is accumulate more. More is better. Take for yourself. And so generosity is radically countercultural. And so I get that. I really do. It's hard for me. But there is a way to live differently and it starts with the generous love of Jesus. It starts with seeing that at its core, love is generous. And so Jesus has gone first and he's showing us a way to go in this. And now it's our turn to go and do the same and live together with generous love. And today we can be reminded of that as we take communion together. We can be reminded of the generous love of Jesus as we eat the bread and drink the juice. So I'm going to invite the host to bring around the elements. If you don't have the, uh, the, the elements, just raise your hand and our host will come and give it to you. I'd also, uh, the prayer team, after they were done taking communion, I invite you to come up and be ready to, to pray alongside people in response to what God's going to do. And look, this bread and this juice is nothing really special. It's not magical, but what it is is a tangible reminder of Jesus' body that was given to us generously. And the blood he shed for the forgiveness of sins, it's simple juice, but a powerful reminder that at its core, love is about giving away what you have for the good of others, that it's generous. And that Jesus gave everything away so that you and I could experience the love and the grace and the mercy of God and enjoy eternity with him. And so as you come and, and, and you receive this teaching, as we take communion, I invite you to ask, do I need a reminder today? Am I someone sitting here and do I need a, a reminder? Like I'm living generously. I'm walking in generosity. I have open hands. If that is you, then just a reminder today to continue to live generously in the way of Jesus. But maybe you're not someone who needs a reminder. Maybe you need a reorientation. Maybe lately your hands have been closed that you've withheld what you had, that you're more like the person who's passed by uh, that woman at Value Village, like I have been so many times. And maybe today you need God to open your hands and you need to uh, start to live generously once again. Maybe you need a reorientation. Maybe today, actually, you need a revolution in your heart. That you need to encounter the love and the power of Jesus in such a way that, that you are changed from the inside out to live generously in a way that you haven't. And so as you come to the table, examine yourself and remember the generous love of God in Jesus as you do. Paul, the apostle, writes this. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. So Jesus, we thank you for your generous love. 
Thank you for inviting us to sit at the foot of the cross and experience it once again. Would you do a work in us? And would we become a people who love generously like you have loved us? In Jesus' name, amen.